Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're very excited to welcome to the podcast today, Zach Foster. Zach's got a PhD in Palestinian history, and he's also the author of the newsletter Palestine in Your Inbox, which you could find at palestinenexus.com. Zach, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to actually take a little bit of a different tack for this one, because you and I are both American Jews of the same generation, and I think we've had roughly similar political journeys. But could you maybe explain a little bit how you found yourself from growing up in a conservative Jewish household, and conservative meaning not in the American political sense, but in the Jewish denominational sense, to being a very vocal pro-Palestinian um, activist and thinker and intellectual? Because I imagine that the journey was a bumpy one or at least not directly straight. So how did you find yourself in this position? Yeah, it's definitely a process. And I think the process starts with getting really interested in Israel. And for me, that meant learning about Israel in Jewish schools growing up, learning about Israel in Zionist summer camps growing up, learning about Israel in youth group going up, and then traveling to Israel with USY in high school, spending six weeks traveling around Israel. And I think that was a starting point for me. I did pilgrimage, dude. I did Eastern Europe pilgrimage. I did the the, uh, Treblinka... Treblinka, Theresienstadt, Auschwitz into Israel during the Second Intifada. So yeah, very similar. Yeah, We we obviously have very similar backgrounds. I did that exact same trip. So that's how I got interested in Israel. And when I went to university, I took courses on Israeli history uh, and Israeli politics and wanted to spend more time in Israel, in Jerusalem, spend a semester at Hebrew University. And Um, yeah, go ahead. Maybe actually, before, before we go into that, could you talk a little bit about like the ideology of these youth group trips in the 1990s and early 2000s? Because we're going to talk about Oslo, but I think it's important for people to understand like this ideological project that was pursued for American Jews, millennial Jews in particular. Yeah, so we're all, what, 15, 16, 17 years old. Probably for most of us, most of us, it's our first time in Israel. We are taken around to the Jewish holy sites. Well, even, let, let me back up. First, we, we spent a week in Poland, right? Going to Auschwitz, going to Dachau, going to Treblinka. Um, and at the end of the trip, you know, it's like, wow, from despair, um, you know, you, you, the depths of despair, right? The, you know, you, you just, you, you're experiencing these just horrific tours around the concentration camps, going to, driving two and a half hours to the middle of, you know, some, Polish forest in the middle of nowhere, you stumble across this concentration camp with, you know, just a gigantic mound of ash. And which is, of course, the cremated Jewish bodies from the Holocaust. And so you just have all of this kind of despair and pain. And then and then you get on a plane and go to Israel where you're taught that like this is this is the solution. This this is the solution to the problem. Yeah, right? the messaging is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty clear. <laughs> it's like, well, they this happened to us, and as a result of that, we need this. We need a Jewish state to protect Jews uh, from anti-Semitism and uh, <clears throat> and genocide and annihilation. Yeah. And so that's the narrative, and so you're taken around Israel and taught what I would just describe as kind of like Hasbara 101, right? Um, you're not the only thing you know about Palestinians is that they want to kill you. Right. Because you're taken, you know, you're taught that, well, you can't go on these certain streets at these certain times because it's very dangerous because you could get blown up. 
Uh, which, of course, you could, right? There's, you know, buses blowing up and cafes blowing up, and it's the second Antifada. It's the most violent period in the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict, I would say, since 48. I mean, if you really think about the second Intifada from 2000 to 2005, you know, Palestinians killed 1,000 uh, Israelis during that period, while Israel killed 3,000 Palestinians. Um, so it's a very violent period. But, but so, so all you really know about Arabs and Palestinians is that they, they want to kill you. Um, other, other than that, you're taken around to the Jewish holy sites and taken to Masada and, you know, taught about the Bar Kokhva revolt and taken to the Western Wall and the, the place that Jews have wept at for thousands of years. And you go to the military cemetery, I remember, um, where like um, Yabatinsky, I think, is buried. I think we went to the grave of Yabatinsky, which was an interesting choice, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good question. I don't recall going to the Jabotinsky grave. I think we definitely went to, you know, Herzl's grave. And I believe we even went to Ben Gurion's grave in the ne- in in the in the south, right? He's he's buried somewhere in the Negev, in the Nakab. I forget exactly where. Um Stay Boker, maybe. Anyways, so so anyways, like so you're you're basically taught, you know, the Zionist narrative uh, uh, you know, as you know, uh, as I would say it in its most kind of right-wing version, right? There's no nuance, um, you know. By the way, like, your your counselors are these, you know, 22, 23-year-old American Jews who are also super Zionist, and all of your tour guides are super Zionist, and, you know, all the bus drivers are uh, uh, get, getting on the, the, the speaker and telling you about, you know, how the Zionists made the desert bloom and how, you know, the Zionists drained all the swamps and how, you know, for after 2000 years of longing, alas, it's a miracle. We created a, a state, uh, it, basically, you know, a land for people, uh, uh, for people without a land. Right. So, uh, sorry. Um, anyways, you, you know, the expression. So that, 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 that was the story of, of, of those six weeks in Israel. And I think it was, again, like I said, as a result of all of these experiences that led me to grow much more interested in Israel first. And, and, and again, exclusively Israel, right? No, you know, when I left to uh, spend a semester in Jerusalem when I was, what is this, you know, nineteen twenty, as an undergrad, as a junior in college, again, still, I don't have any conception of, of Palestinians. I don't know anything about Palestinian history. And it was, I think, literally my first week in Jerusalem. First of all, I'm on Mount Scopus, which is like, basically an Arab neighborhood, you know, you're kind of right on the edge of kind of Arab East Jerusalem. Um, and so it's like, you know, that's also interesting. And then I'm in an Ulpan with half Palestinians from East Jerusalem who don't know Hebrew. And this is really weird for me. I'm like, wait, you grew up in Jerusalem and you don't know Hebrew? Like that was a surprise to me. And so got to, uh, and so just the, as the curious person I was, got interested in in their stories and their backgrounds and their experiences, and started uh, uh, trading and started meeting uh, with them uh, to learn Hebrew, to exchange uh, Hebrew. They're trying to learn Hebrew. We're trying to learn Hebrew, and so we're exchange we're meeting to learn Hebrew. And I think at some point I just grew more curious and more interested in in Arabic, and tried starting learning a little bit of Arabic, and 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 started taking more classes on kind of the Israel Palestine conflict and Palestinian history. I think the next step for me was a summer I spent in the Balkans uh, with a group of half-Jews and half-Palestinians. And it was a program at the time called Abraham's Vision. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. but No, I'm not. Is that like a Bronfman program? Like, who's funding this? No, it, it was a... I don't know the funders, but the, the basic idea of the program... It's now defunct, by the way. But the basic idea of, of this three-and-a-half-week uh, trip to the Balkans 
with, again, half American Jews, half American Palestinians, was to de-exceptionalize Israel-Palestine, was to go to a place where people don't care at all about Israel-Palestine, but nevertheless are in, a, in an eth- ethnic conflict, and nevertheless are disputing over land, and, and nevertheless, you know, uh, have this long history of, of, of conflict. And so, it, it, you know, so the idea was, what can we learn? from the Serbs and the, and the Bosnians and Croatians and the Kosovars, how can we study that conflict? Again, kind of leaving aside Israel-Palestine, but just trying to understand what happened there. What is that going to teach us about our own situation? The ethnic conflict, it's so 1990s, early 2000s. It's like, <laughs> history has ended, there's ethnic conflict. Let's like move past these ethnic conflicts. It's such an interesting moment. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we also had a bunch of dialogues, right? So it was, let's Number one, study about what happened in the Balkans in the 90s. And there are a lot of parallels, okay? A lot of parallels. You know, for example, uh, you have little Serbian enclaves in Albania, in Kosovo, which very much re- resemble the Israeli settlements in the West Bank. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. Um, and so, and, and you could you could even say this, this you know, basically what the Serbs did to the Kosovars is kind of similar to basically what the Israelis have been doing to the Palestinians. So, so anyways, there's a lot of interesting parallels. We're traveling around uh, uh, the Balkans for a month, but we're also engaging in dialogues between the, you know, every, you know, week we do two or three of these three-hour dialogue sessions with Jews and Palestinians in a room where the Palestinians are like, you know, what about the Nakba? And we're like, what is that? So... So that was really my first real exposure, um, I would say, to kind of the Palestinian narrative. And that really had a profound uh, impact on me. And, and, and I would say, first and foremost, it got me more interested in history because these Palestinians are talking about history. And I'm like, wait, the Nakba, what are you even talking about? I don't even know what that is. Like, I literally just don't know what some of these things are that they're talking about. Yeah. And like the big thing to me, uh, I, tell me if you remember this, is that the map of Israel that would be in these conservative Jewish spaces didn't even have the occupied territories. You know, so there's like Correct. no way to even be aware of what this is. It had it didn't have greater Israel, but it incorporated the West Bank and Gaza as Israel. Yeah, you look at a map of the state of Israel growing up and it's it's British mandatory Palestine, right? There's no conception that there's a Gaza and a West Bank, which are Palestinian. Um right. so you're absolutely right about that. Um so in any case, I got more interested in history at that point. And so, you know, went back to, you know, university and just started voraciously reading every book of of Israeli-Palestinian history that I could get my hands on, especially the new Israeli historians, Avi Shleim, Benny Morris, Ilan Pape, Simha Flappen, etc. And when you read those books, you come to a very, very different conclusion about Zionist history um, than you would have uh, uh, had you not had, had you just been exposed to that what I would call Zionist propaganda growing up, um, and so you know you read about how Israel in 1956 joins Britain and France in a neo-colonial war to reoccupy the Suez Canal, during which time Israeli forces enter the Gaza Strip, occupy the Gaza Strip, and slaughter hundreds of Palestinians in massacres. And this is this is Benny Morris describing these massacres. The same Benny Morris who now talks about the uh, you know, how, how unfortunate it was that the Zionists didn't finish the job in '48, right? So this this is not a liberal, you know, this is not like some you know uh, uh, you know pro-Palestinian Zionist historian. This is like this is like a very pro you know Israeli Zionist historian writing this. So, anyways, you start to read this history and you learn that. Actually, it was Israel that was very obstinate. Even after the Six-Day War in 1967, you learned that, in fact, it was actually Enwar Sadat who put, kept putting out peace, peace fillers to Israel. And it was Golda Meir and after him uh, and after her, many Israeli prime ministers that had no interest in signing any kind of peace deal with Egypt. 
Anyway, so you learn this version of Israeli history that is unflattering. You learn, you, you read the books, uh, um, uh, you, you learn about basically how Zionists answered the question of how do you build a Jewish state in a land that is overwhelmingly non-Jewish? And every Zionist leader had to confront this question in, from 1890 to 1948. And, and, you know, it's the right there in Theodore Herzl's diary in the 1890s. He says, we'll probably have to expel them. And the same is true of Arthur Rupin and, Je- Je- uh, and Zabotinsky, the guy you just mentioned, you referenced earlier. Um, it's true of Ushbizin. Um, it's true of Yosef Weitz, the head of the... Um, uh, it's true basically of every single Zion, important Zionist leader. Um, some the, the more progressive ones, the more liberal ones, are believe that um, because of Jewish innovation and Jewish ingenuity and you know Zionist uh, investment in the land, that actually they'll they won't mind living in a Jewish state subject to Jewish domination because of all the benefits that will come with that. Um, those are the more progressive ones. Then you have some that believe that, no, you know what? These people have their own national identity and they have their own uh, uh, history in the land and and their own strong connection to the land. Um, and they're not willing to subject themselves to, to Jewish domination. And, and they will resist. Um, but if we bribe them, then they'll, then they'll accept it. Basically, there was, so I think there were generally speaking three positions. One was, you know, clearly these people have a strong identity and we have to expel them. Two, you know, maybe they'll appreciate, you know, Zionist ingenuity and they're, they're willing to live uh, sort of within kind of a Zionist framework or of a Jewish state. And then third was like, you know, maybe we can bribe them and, and, and they'll sort of re- reluctantly ag- agree to, to, to live within our boundaries, but like nevertheless within a, a, a kind of a Jewish Zionist state. So anyways, like you learn this history and for me personally, this really challenged everything I thought and everything I believed. And like, as a person who's just very curious and open-minded and honestly, I, 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 I was very sympathetic to the viewpoint and just wanted to dig deeper and, and, and wanted to study um, the history, not from like just reading the books in English, but like, you know, getting into the primary sources, reading the Arabic diaries and manuscripts and, and, and memoirs and, and, and sort of actually writing the history myself. And so that's kind of what led me to do a PhD in Palestinian history. At Princeton the home of Bernard Lewis in the War of Terror. So what was it like to be at Princeton? Maybe you could explain a little bit like who Bernard Lewis is. And I, I'm, I'm just personally curious, how did, were you in the history department or were you in like the, the East, uh, the Middle East languages department? The latter. Okay. So, so you were in Bernard Lewis's department. Correct. Right. So what the hell was that like? And so maybe you could describe like who he is, and what was going on in the war on terror? Because this is actually a very interesting moment for Princeton, because he writes that famous book, basically. It's called What Went Wrong? Is that That's the title? Correct. Oh, my I mean, God. Bernard Lewis Jesus wrote dozens Christ. of books, right? Yeah, so, yeah, but this is like big post 9-11 book. Yeah, he's a serious scholar. I mean, like he's like taken seriously as far as I understand it. But then he has this like real Islamophobic. I don't know if it's a turn or but but may, explain who he is. Yeah. So Bernard Lewis is a British Jewish historian born, uh, I believe, in the early 20th century. So he got his PhD before World War I, before World War II, okay? Um, he wrote his PhD on the Ismailiya sect of Shia Islam in like 1938 or 39 or something like that. And then he, um, you know, he's an Arabist, so he knows Arabic. And so he gets recruited into the British um, army and serves, the, the, you know, during, during World War II, serves in some capacity in British intelligence, you know, a, a, a helping, I guess, translate or work with Arabic, um, you know, in the Arab world. Or a, I think he also knew Persian and Turkish. So, you know, he, he was a very, he was a linguist. Um, and then I think after World War II, 
he developed this reputation as really his expertise, his real, I think, contribution uh, to scholarship in the post-World War II era was the book, the, what he wrote on Ottoman history, especially Ottoman social history. He wrote a number of very interesting accounts using the Tapu registers, I believe, in the in Ottoman 15th century history, 16th century history. Um, and so he got a reputation as his Ottomanist. I think he was actually the first Western historian allowed into the Ottoman archives. Um, and so that that is correct. Yes. Okay. And so and then, you know, after I think by the 1960s, he's basically just writing popular books, right? His his reputation as this, you know, a scholar of Islam and a scholar of the Arab world is cemented. And he's no longer, I think, doing a whole lot of primary source research, but he's publishing these kind of like magnum opuses. To give one example, in 1975, he publishes this 30,000, no, maybe it's a 10,000 word essay in Commentary Magazine, which is basically this kind of history of the Palestinians and of the Israel-Palestine question, which includes something like 30 or 40 footnotes, right? This is back in the, in the day when Commentary Magazine allowed you to, you know, basically it was an academic article, um, but geared towards an, uh, a general public. But basically he writes this article saying that, uh, you know, there was no such thing as Palestine. The Arabs, uh, you know, were always part of Syria. They never had any interest in Palestine. Again, so he... He becomes, I would say, the chief historian of propagandist in this war against the, the idea of Palestine, the, the idea that there ever were a people called Palestinians. And I think it was reading that work that got me much more interested in actually like trying to understand who the Palestinians were, when they called themselves Palestinians, when did they use the word Palestine in history. And, and that's what I wrote my PhD dissertation on. But look, Bernard, but just to get back to your question, you know, Bernard Lewis, so his last year, uh, his last year giving the inaugural lecture, uh, Brown, you know, the inaugural lecture in my department uh, was the year before I joined the department. So look, by the time I joined in, was it 2011, 2012? You know, he was already, I think, in Philadelphia in a nursing home. Like he was already, you know, 94, 95 or 96 or whatever he was at the time. And so he was not active, right? He was not even really active in the years prior, but nevertheless was giving that inaugural address. So I never had any interaction really, but I've never met the guy. I mean, he died a few years ago. So, I've, I, you know, I mean, he, you know, I have no, no personal interactions whatsoever with him. Uh, what I would say, though, is that even by the last few years of his stint in the prison uh, near research and studies department, the department was very divided. And so you had, I would say, like the, the kind of the, the Bernard Lewis's, uh, you know, which included maybe people like Bernard Haeckel and Qasem Zaman, people who were like, um, you know, more traditional in their approach to scholarship, maybe a little bit more conservative. Um, people who are unlikely to uh, quote uh, Foucault or, or, or Lacan or, or, or postmodern theorists, people who are all about the sources, all about mastering Ottoman Turkish, you know, Shukru Haniolu, I would, I would put in this category, people who are just like, write good history, you know, learn Arabic, learn Ottoman Turkish, learn Persian, um, don't waste your time with French philosophy. Um, and, and I would say that's kind of the traditional core of the department that used to be most of the department until recently, maybe until the past 10, 20 years. And then there's a kind of, a, let's say, the new Near Eastern Studies Department. People like Max Weiss, people like Sears Shayag, you know, people like maybe even Jonathan Gribbets, although, I mean, I'm not sure I would, maybe he's somewhere in the middle. But in any case, so the, the, the new scholars who do cite French philosophers, who are more interested in, in kind of, you know, it, who are maybe less interested in the nitty gritty of like Persian, uh, you know, philology in the 17th century and are more interested in like connecting to the broader world of historia of modern 21st century historiography. Um, so that, that's kind of how I would characterize the department at the time that I was there.
That's really interesting. And maybe we could actually talk a little bit about the state of Israel studies, because my understanding is that there have been a lot of divisions within the field between generations. Do you, could, you, could you talk to that about Israel and Palestine studies and how that has developed in the last 10, 15 years? Yeah. I mean, look, if you go back to, or to the 70s and 80s and you ask people who were doing their PhDs around that time, people like Joel Bynan, right, who, who wrote a number of, uh, uh, of very excellent works on Palestinian history, they will tell you, Zachary Lockman is another one, they will tell you that it was very taboo to even to even write Palestinian history in the first place back then, right? This is at an era when the PLO is this international terrorist organization going around, you know, uh, committing all these uh, quote-unquote terrorist attacks. And so just even broaching the question of Palestinian history was considered controversial in the 70s and 80s. And I think that started to change probably sometime in the 80s and 90s. And increasingly, you had more people writing Palestinian history. Remember, this is also the time when the Israeli archives are opening up. So the 30-year rule, I mean, how is it that Benny Morris, probably you know one of the most prolific, certainly, and, and one of the most rigorous historians of Israel-Palestine, how is it that Benny Morris in 1988, I believe, publishes his you know, the, the, the birth of the Palestinian refugee problem. Well, it's because the 30 years had passed since 1948, and Israel was opening up the archives. Um, by the way, now, in the past 10, 20 years, we know from work of like people like Sheikh Haskani that Israel has closed back up those archives, that many of the documents that were previously available in the 80s and 90s are now back under, uh, um, are, are, are sealed. And you have many reports now of historians like finding, you know, a document it, you know, reference in a Benny Morris book or someone else's book and trying to find it and it's gone. They've taken the documents out of it and they've actually, go, there's a systematic effort right now to purge the Israeli archives of any effort, of any evidence that there were massacres committed in 48 or 67 or that there were expulsions committed in 48 or 67. And so it's a pretty, I would say, draconian, I think, effort right now that the Israeli, the Israeli archivists are, are, are undertaking. But back to your question. So Palestinian history is taboo. Um, and then I think you start to get all these accounts really starting in the late 80s and 90s, especially among Israeli historians, very critical historians uh, of, you know, Palestinian history. Yehoshua Porath writes an excellent book, I think already in the 70s, on the Palestinian national movement. So th there, is, there is some very interesting history being written. But I would say, look, within Israel, I would say that, you know, Israelis take a much more empirical approach to history. Like, Let's just get the facts right. Let's just go into the archives and, and, and tell a story about what happened in the past. I would say in the U.S. and in Canada, there's been much more of a, I would say, um, you know, a different approach to writing history, which is, you know, let's start with some, you know, French philosopher and let's try and show how, you know, how, how Israel-Palestine history confirms the theories and, 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 you know, the theories that they've come up with, let's say, in, in you know, the post like the 1960s, 70s period of this like post-colonial uh, history. Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of rambling uh, about at this point, but I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different types of, of, of Israel-Palestine history written. You know, there is, I would say, that the kind of like you have Zionist historiography, you have Palestinian historiography, where you have historians who start with the conclusion that the Palestinians are correct or that the Israelis are correct, and they go into history looking to justify those narratives. Um, and I think that's very common both in both on the Israeli and the Palestinian side today. Um, you have a, a, a kind of a version of, of Palestinian history where th there's attempts to kind of write Palestinians back into history. And so Rashid Khalidi is a great example of this, where, you know, his book, uh, Palestinian Identity, published in, I believe, 1997, 
is when he goes back into like 18th century documents he finds in the Khalidi library in, in which he's trying to show that, look, already in you know 1701 and 1726, there's an identity around Palestine and there's a strong Palestinian identity. Um, so, and, and you know, I, I might call myself, a, you know, a revisionist to that uh, a point, which is like, no, there wasn't a Palestinian identity in 18th century. People called the place Palestine then. Uh, but I wouldn't exactly talk about a Palestinian identity in the 18th century. So, look, there's a lot of different strands of Palestinian history, and and, and you know, it's sort of um, you know, we, we can take that that conversation in whichever direction you like. So, I just want to know what what would you say the state of the field is today in in 2023, and then I want to move on to Oslo. But I'm just very curious: how do these fields interact, or do they not interact? Because Israel studies institutionally can sometimes be a part of Jewish studies and Palestine studies might be a part of that, but also like doesn't have necessarily the easiest relationship. So I'm just curious where the field stands now. The field's... Uh... Yeah, there's a few trends. I think one trend is 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 among Israel-Palestine scholars to disaggregate Israel uh, studies from Jewish studies. So historically, if you were studying Zionist history in the 1930s, you might find yourself in a Jewish studies department. But I think because... For for perfect for very good reasons, you know. There's a, like, why is that Jewish history? First of all, like, no, no, that's Middle East history. Why are you just conflating Israel and Judaism? That's those are different things. And so there's this desire to kind of reframe and recontextualize Israeli history within Middle East history rather than within uh, Jewish history. That's one trend. There's also this ongoing debate about should you study Palestinian history um, independent of uh, of Zionism or is Palestinian history necessarily part of, of the history of Zionism? Um, and so you have scholars like Zachary Lachman who would say, you know, you can't understand Zionist history without understanding the Zionist encounter with the Palestinians. But then you have, you know, Palestinians being like, we don't have a history independent of Zionism? Our history is just wrapped up in the history of the, of the Jewish immigration to Palestine? Wait, hold on. Like, and there's a rejection of that. Um, so I think that's another sort of ongoing debate. And, and then I would say, you know, you have more other debates about, like, to what extent should history be written from more of an empirical approach versus to what extent should history be written more from a philosophical approach, trying to engage with other histories in other parts of the world. That's kind of a whole other debate. And then, of course, you have, you know, the propaganda wars and, you know, Zionists and Palestinian historians kind of looking into history to find evidence to support the narrative that they, that they started with to begin with. Yes, so th th there's a lot of different uh, strands within uh, you know Israel-Palestine history right now. The, the final one that I would I would say is is increasingly popular is this desire to characterize uh, Zionism uh, within the history of settler colonial movements around the world, uh, specifically to talk about Zionism as actually an ideal type of 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 of, of a settler colonial movement. And Arnon Dagani, I believe is his name, talks about this a lot, which is like if you think about what settler colonialism is, it's like a group of people. Um, who said, you know what, to hell with the country we're in, we're being persecuted, whatever it is, we're going to sever our ties with this country and move to a new country, settle a new land. Um, and if you really think about, in comparison, the Zionist case and the British case and the Australian case and the Canadian case, the Zionist case is the ideal type. Because whereas the American settlers wanted to preserve many of them, they wanted to preserve their connection uh, to, to, to Britain. And, and the Canadian settlers wanted to preserve their connection to France. Um, the Zionist settlers were like, to hell with the old world. You know, we were shackled and, you know, persecuted for centuries in Europe. To hell with that. We never want to go back. We want to establish new roots in a new country. And so it's actually almost, you might even say, an ideal type of a settler colonial movement. So there's a bunch of different, I think, you know, uh, uh, strains and, you know, trends within Israel-Palestine history. And those are maybe four or five of them. Zach, I'm, I'm curious to follow up on on that. Um, the The... 
the trend toward kind of getting uh, Israeli history out of the silo of Jewish studies, does that go in tandem with uh, there's there's you know the the other trend or the trend to to kind of get biblical studies out of its own silo and and incorporated into broader archaeological like i know that's been a a thing that's happened in the academy too this kind of isolation of biblical studies they're trying to break break that down and bring sort of you know the the techniques and and um you know kind of attitudes of genuine archaeology to that field as well 100 percent, 100 percent. i think historically in the 19th century if you studied bible studies you know that that meant you studied, you know, the J, E, P, and D sources, right? Like, you know, this part of the Bible was written by the J source, and this part of the five books of Moses was written by the E source, and so on. And it was a a philological approach to the study of the Bible. And I think over time, what uh, Bible scholars realized was like, there's all this other evidence. There's archaeological evidence primarily. And if you really want to understand, and also, by the way, not just archaeological evidence, but there's Assyrian sources, and there's Egyptian sources, and there's Aramaic sources, and there's Greek sources. And and so if you really want to understand the world of the Bible, then why would you just limit yourself to philology? That makes no sense. You you should also look at philology, um, but you should obviously look at the archaeological record, and you should obviously look at the other records that we have from these other peoples of the ancient Near East. Desk. 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 Desk.